All right, brothers and sisters, it's time to take out God's Word together. So if you will, grab a Bible, go with me today to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. What would you say is the most boring part of the Bible? The most boring part of it all. A lot of folks would say the genealogies. The genealogies, right? Endless names that you can't pronounce. This one begat that one, and that one begat this one, and so on and so forth. Can't we just skip these? Why did God put them here? A lot of obedient Christians think about the genealogies in our Bible like eating our vegetables. You just got to grit your teeth and bear down and do it. I know this is good for me somehow. Any of y'all, when you were growing up, did any of y'all hear something to the effect of, you'll eat it and you'll like it? You ever hear that? I kind of feel like that today as the, the preacher. I'm doing a genealogy. Like, you'll sit there and you'll like it. But there's blessing in these genealogies. There are, believe it or not. The, the Christmas story and the New Testament itself begins with a genealogy. We know that God does nothing haphazardly, that every word that is in our Bibles is right where it should be, on purpose, because the Lord wanted it there. We believe, we believe, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Do you believe that this morning? All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And God honors it. When we come to a passage of Scripture and we have a heart that is saying, God, I have no idea why this is here. God, I have no idea how I'm going to get anything out of this, but I trust you. I trust that you put it there for my good on purpose, and you want me to know it, you want me to read it, and you want me to receive whatever blessing it is from this, and so I'm going to read it. God honors that heart, and he blesses us many times in ways we don't even know about. And so today... We're asking, what can we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? And how can it help us to worship and rejoice in Christ this Christmas season? Tim Keller, in his book, Hidden Christmas, writes this. Matthew does not begin his story of Jesus' birth by saying, once upon a time. That is the way fairy tales and legends and myths and Star Wars begin. Once upon a time signals that this probably didn't happen or that we don't know if it happened, but it is a beautiful story that teaches us so much. But that is not the kind of account Matthew is giving us. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That means he is grounding what Jesus Christ is and does in history. Jesus is not a metaphor. He is real. This all happened. This genealogy, it roots Jesus' coming in history. Matthew shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is not just some legend or fairy tale. He was a real person who entered into a specific point in human history at a specific place, born into a specific family. And so let's read the genealogy of Jesus Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Stick with me here. There's blessing here, I promise you. Verse 1. This is God's word. 
The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There are a few points that I want to bring out today from this genealogy. Now, we don't have time to go back through all of the people in this family tree. It's actually a fascinating list. There are so many of these people that we know of from the information that we read in our Old Testaments. You can do research on so many of these folks that are in the Old Testament. It's actually quite fascinating, but we don't have time to go through them all. But there are three kind of overarching points that I want to make from this genealogy. And the first is this. Jesus's family line was extremely diverse. This is a very diverse family. In this family tree, we read that there are Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Gentiles in this family tree. Jesus was not, as they say, a pure blood, a pure blood Israelite. He was not. He had Gentile blood flowing through him from his genealogy. When we look at this list, we see Rahab, who was a Canaanite, if you remember. She was not an Israelite. She lived in Canaan, in Jericho specifically, when Joshua and the Israelites came to overtake that city. We read of Ruth, who was a Moabite. She was from the country of Moab. The Israelites had run-ins with Moab time and time again in the Old Testament. Many of the things that we learn about Moab was very ungodly and very pagan, but Ruth is one very beautiful and notable exception there. And so there's Jews and Gentiles here. It's very diverse. There are great kings. We think of Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah in this list. But there are also horrible kings. We'll get to some of them here in just a second. 
Not only kings, but lowly shepherds, prostitutes in this list, remarried widows, and even menial carpenters. And then there are a bunch of nobodies. A bunch of nobodies in this list. Because even though Jesus is in the direct line back to King David, showing that he's the rightful heir to the throne, after the deportation to Babylon that you read there in verse 11 and following, after that, the royal family line fell into very humble circumstances. To the point that after Zerubbabel in verse 13... After him, we really don't know anything about any of these guys. Don't know anything about them. We don't know who they are. We don't know what they did. We have no Old Testament record of them. A bunch of nobodies in Jesus' family line. It eventually comes to the point that Joseph, even though he's in a direct line of descendant from King David, Joseph was a carpenter, very blue-collar worker, something a king in that day would never have been doing. And so what does this all tell us? Well, it tells us Jesus' family is diverse. And that means God's family is diverse. God's family is wonderfully diverse. In God's family, race does not matter. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. The family of God is open to everybody. In God's family, your status does not matter. It doesn't matter if you are influential or not. Your status in the world, in the community, does not matter. It's open to everyone. Your wealth does not matter. In Christ and in God's family, there are rich billionaires, and there are people that are so poor that we cannot even imagine the poverty that they live in every single day because it's open to all. In the family of God, your occupation does not matter or what occupation you come from does not matter. Your pedigree does not matter. It doesn't matter if you had a religious upbringing or not. It doesn't matter if you are well-known or influential or popular. Revelation 5 verse 9 says Jesus died to ransom people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people group. Galatians 3.28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. The cross levels the playing field for everyone. Even in the first century, you see Paul writing in letters like Ephesians, writing to slaves and masters who would have been sitting together in a church service. Absolutely revolutionized the way that people thought of the social status categories. There's there's, there's none of that in Christ. It levels the playing field. And so... It's wonderfully diverse. That verse that we just read from Galatians, it does not mean that that all all diversity melts away. No, it just means that we're all equal. We're all equal in Christ. There's wonderful diversity in God's family. Jesus' family was diverse. God's family. Our church family. And not just our church family, but the church worldwide is wonderfully diverse. But this is not just a diverse family. We see from right here, this is a messed up family. It's a messed up family. I mean, think about it. Let's, let's go back through this genealogy, just hitting some of the, the high points. You might even call them low points. Jacob, verse 2. Jacob, the liar, the deceiver, the polygamist. 
And then we go to verse 3. There's Perez. <clears throat> Perez came about in a very interesting way. Genesis 38 tells us that Tamar disguised herself from her father-in-law Judah, who thought she was a prostitute. Her father-in-law, walking by, thinks she is a prostitute, and that union brings about Perez. The family line of Jesus, the, the line of the Messiah. Go read that sometime in Genesis 38. Rahab, verse 5, told you she's a Canaanite. She was also a prostitute. A prostitute. Solomon, verse 6, notice how it says in verse 6, Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Did you notice how every now and then it'll say by and then it'll include a woman? Now, it doesn't do that every time. So when it does, we perk up and we ask why. Why, why is this woman included here? And here it's really interesting because he doesn't even give Bathsheba's name. He says, by the wife of Uriah. Why? Because Matthew wants you to know. This is, this is David's relationship, illicit relationship with Bathsheba. And then he had her husband Uriah, her righteous husband, killed. And eventually those were the two people that God chose to have the next king of Israel. And the next one in the line of the Messiah. David, or Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew's making sure that we understand it was a sinful union between David and this woman. And those were King Solomon's parents. And not only that, this is Solomon, by the way, Solomon who in his later years turned away from the Lord so much by being obsessed with women and sexual immorality. And that was the start of the division in the kingdom of Israel, north and south. That was the start of it because of Solomon's sexual immorality. Solomon had Rehoboam. Rehoboam, one of the worst kings in Israelite history. Rehoboam's there in verse 7. Rehoboam was foolish and selfish. He listened to his young friends versus the wisdom of the older men, counselors around him. And because of that, God divided the kingdom during his reign. You go on down to verse 9 and there's Manasseh. Manasseh. And Manasseh was so evil, a king so evil that after he died, God would reference back to his disobedience as the reason he was punishing his people, the Israelites, even after he had died. This is a messed up family tree. Messed up. And one of the things that this tells us is Jesus is not your typical king. Jesus is not your typical king. He does not hide the messiness in his family tree. Most people, especially important people of that day, would have hidden these things. They didn't want other people to know about them. You wanted a spotless resume. And in that day and age, your resume was essentially your family tree. You could show, these are the kind of people I come from, the upstanding, influential people that I, I come from, my parents, my grandparents. But we have evidence that people like King Herod hid some people in their family tree, they tried to get it wiped off the record because they didn't want anybody to know that I come from that kind of person. It was like your resume. No, Jesus, Jesus doesn't do this. God shows us the sins and the dysfunction, the ugly and messy truth in Jesus' line. Why? Because Jesus is one of us. It helps us to remember Jesus is one of us. Do you ever feel like you have a messed up family? Have you ever thought that? Are Christmas get-togethers sometimes a little awkward? Maybe a little contentious? Sometimes they, they can be very sad because some of us feel like my family is, is messed up. 
Jesus had a messed up family too. Jesus is one of us. It also shows us, though, that your own messed up life, your own, your life, your messed up life, your own sinful past does not disqualify you from God's family. Your own sinful messed up past does not disqualify you from God's family. Think of David's relationship with Bathsheba. Began by adultery and murder. It was an illegitimate, absolutely scandalous union. This is the king of Israel, by the way. And yet God chose for that man and that couple to produce the next king of Israel. He chose for that couple to be the ones to produce the next in the messianic line. Do you look at your messed up past and the sins that you've committed and think, that, that, that should disqualify me? And if it doesn't disqualify me from, from being in God's family, at least it disqualifies me from being used by God to do great things in His kingdom. It's not true at all. Some of you might be sitting there right now thinking, my marriage disqualifies me from being used by God in His kingdom. This marriage that, that we're in right now, I've, I've messed up my past. This is not my first marriage, perhaps. This is perhaps not my second marriage. There are many people out there who think because of my marriage and because of my past divorces that God can't use me in His kingdom. David and Bathsheba say otherwise. God chose them And that was completely illegitimate, completely sinful. And yet the grace and the mercy of God is powerful enough to cover anything. God is not done with you. And God has not disqualified you from being used for great things in his kingdom because of your past. Rahab was a prostitute. Think about it. Rahab. And yet God in His grace blessed her to have Boaz, a man of such upstanding character. And He chose her to be one of the mothers in the Messianic line. And so no matter how sinful your past is, whether it's adultery, divorce, illegitimate marriage, sexual immorality, even murder, no matter what it is, no sin is so horrible that it disqualifies you from the family of God. And not just disqualifying you from God's family, but from being used by God to do His will in great ways for His kingdom. If God chose these people to be in the family line of Jesus, surely I can get in. Right? It's one of the beautiful messages of Christmas, one of the beautiful messages of the genealogy of Jesus. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us his family because God is willing to use messed up people like us to do great things for him and his kingdom. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of the messiness. He's not ashamed of Jesus's messed up family tree. And so it's a diverse family. It's a messed up family, but I want to draw your attention in closing to the very first verse of the whole thing. Look there with me one more time. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, and this is the introduction. He's not gotten into it yet. He says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's who Jesus is called. Now, there are so many people in this genealogy that he could have said the son of, but he didn't say that. He said the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Specifically those two. Why those two and none of the others? Well, let's start with the first, the son of David. Saying Jesus was the son of David, because we know that's not his direct father, that's 14 generations on up the line, uh, even more than that, actually, I think. It's, it's 28. If he's the son of David, it means he's the rightful heir to the throne. Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. He is the true and eternal king. The king of kings. When King Herod received the wise men, if you remember, they asked him, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. They've been traveling, following that star. They finally get to Jerusalem. They come to the palace, because the palace is where you go. If you've heard a king has been born, let's go to the palace. Where is he who's been born king? And Herod says, I'm sorry, what? There's another king? And he's threatened by that. Another king's going to take my power. And so Herod had all the male children, two years old and under in Bethlehem, killed. Because he's threatened by the idea of another king. But Jesus did not come to take up that kind of throne. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And no one can dethrone Jesus as king. It doesn't matter what Herod does. It doesn't matter what any worldly power does. You can't take Jesus off of his throne. You can't stage a coup to remove Jesus from his throne. You can't even get to his throne room. You can't even go there if you tried. And his authority has been given to him. His rule and reign has been given to him by the the creator of the entire universe, the ruler of the entire universe. You can't do anything about this kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom, and yet Herod is threatened by it. Well, Herod's not alone. All kinds of people today are threatened by the idea of Jesus as king. Jesus as king. Because the son of David is not just the king of the Jews. He's the ruler of the universe. And the real question is, will you give him the rule of your heart? The rule of your heart. Will you insist on being your own king? Or will you submit to his reign and his rule? That's the question for every single one of us. For every single one of us. In the end... Those who submitted to Jesus' rule and Jesus' reign as king in their hearts, they will reign with him for all eternity over the new creation. And those who refused to submit to his reign, he will come and defeat and destroy and put away his enemies. And they will be treated as such. And so will you give him the rule of your heart? Or will you be like King Herod and feel threatened by what he wants to come in and do? So Jesus is the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham, which means Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. God's promise and covenant to Abraham came in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis 12, 3, God said this to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then he says this, and in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. Abraham probably didn't realize it, but right there, God was promising to bring Christ. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through your line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because through you will come one who will bless them. Through you will come the one who will save them. 
The coming of Jesus was thousands of years in the making. God announced it all the way back in Genesis 3.15 when he was giving the curse to Adam and Eve and he spoke to Eve. And he gave the first prophecy of the coming of Christ, how Satan will wound Jesus, but Jesus would crush the serpent. And then he, he promised again to Abraham, although Abraham might not have known exactly what God meant. And when he came to Abraham, he actually told Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a son. You're going to have a son. Even though they were pushing 100 years old and Sarah had been barren all her life, Isaac was the miracle child. The child of promise. And he was the child who would foreshadow the ultimate miracle child. The miraculous conception. A virgin girl conceiving a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the son of Abraham. This shows us God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Even when it takes thousands of years, he keeps his promises. He kept his promise to Abraham. He kept his promise to the Israelites. And he will keep every single promise he has made to us. God has made promises to us, brothers and sisters. And if you're a Christian today, we're staking our eternity on that. That we believe that God keeps his promises. We stake our eternity on it. That all those who come to repent of their sins and come to Christ receive the forgiveness of their sins and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. That's a promise God has made to us. God has promised that in the end, all who repented and trusted in Christ will be saved from God's wrath. God has promised that Christ will come again and put an end once and for all to sin and suffering and death. And God has promised that those who remain faithful to Christ will reign with him over the new creation for all eternity. God keeps his promises. Mark Meyer said in his communion meditation earlier today that every time we take communion together, we are reminded that the promises of God in Christ to us are nearer today than when we first believed. Nearer today than when we first believed, right? Now you might say, well, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. It might be 3,000 years from now. It might be longer than that. That doesn't seem near at all. That's true. But every week that passes... Those promises of God are nearer to us because every single one of us is nearer to death. Nearer to death. Now, that that might sound morbid, but it's not. It's, it's It's a glorious thing for those who are in Christ. Paul said in Philippians 1, to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. To die is gain if you are in Christ. We look forward to that because that means the promises of God being full and finally fulfilled in our souls. They're nearer than we, when we first believed. God keeps all his promises. Numbers 23, 19 tells us, God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and he, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Rhetorical questions, obviously, of course he will. God says in Isaiah 46, 11, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God keeps his promises. Christmas reminds us God keeps all his promises. And so in conclusion, I'd like to quote once again from that Christmas book by Tim Keller. He writes, The biblical Christmas texts are accounts of what actually happened in history. They are not Aesop's fables, 
inspiring examples of how to live well. Many people believe the gospel to be just another moralizing story, but they, sh- they could not be more mistaken. There is no moral of the story to the nativity. The shepherds, the parents of Jesus, the wise men are not being held up primarily as examples for us. These gospel narratives are telling you not what you should do, but what God has done. The birth of the Son of God into the world is a gospel, good news, an announcement. You don't save yourself. God has come to save you. That's as good a place as any for us to end today. I want to ask you now, as we finish, and Dwayne will will play a little bit for us in the background, that you spend these next few moments responding to the Lord, responding to His Word. We give this individual prayer time after the sermon each week so that we all can respond in whatever ways we need to. We'll have a time of public response here in just a second, but not not everybody does that. Not everybody needs to do that. But we all need to respond to the Lord in our hearts. So he just spoke to us. Let's spend a few minutes speaking back to him, pouring out our hearts back to him, responding to whatever he's put on your heart. And then after a few minutes of prayer, we'll come back together. We'll have a time where anybody who needs to can respond to God's word in a public manner. Let's pray.